Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15? Now, some of you will remember back to 1997 when a very famous fight took place that left bite marks. It was June when Evander Holifield, Mike Tyson, took to each other in a very famous fight when in the third round, Tyson decided to actually bite a chunk out of Holifield's ear. He was not suspended at that moment. They went back at it again, and Tyson went for the left ear and actually took a chunk out of the ear and spit it across the ring. It was known as the bite fight after that. In the scriptures this morning, we look at a text in Acts chapter 15 that is an apostolic boxing match. It's between two very strong individuals who both love the Lord but disagree over a particular issue. Let me tell you a story about a disagreement. There were two friends They loved each other, but they often argued with each other. One was a salesman, the other was a barber. The salesman would go to the barber to get his hair cut. And on one occasion, when the salesman came into the barber shop, he announced that he was going to Rome. Well, the barber happened to be Italian, born in Italy, but very negative in his outlook, very disagreeable. And the barber said, Rome is overrated. It's too crowded, it's too expensive. And the man said, well, I'm planning to go anyway. Well, the barber said, what hotel are you going to stay at and what airlines are you going to fly? And the man told him. And once again, it was met with negativity. That is the worst airlines ever. They're never on time. And the hotel, the worst service in Italy. He said, you'd be better off staying home. The man said, well, I got to go. I'm going to close, I hope, a business deal in Italy. And then I plan to see the Pope. The barber paused and said, first of all, Italy is the worst place to do business. Number two, you're going to see the Pope. The Pope only see important to people. You're not important. (laughs) Two months later, the man was back in the barber shop. Big smile on his face. The barber asked what happened. The salesman said, sure enough, I went to Rome The airline was great. The hotel was beautiful. Best service ever experienced. I closed the biggest and best business deal in my entire career. And I met the Pope. Well, the barber was taken back by this. He said, what happened? He said, I'll tell you what happened. I shook the Pope's hand, talked to him, and I bent down to kiss his ring. He said, you did? What did he say? He said, well, as I bent down to kiss his ring, he looked at my head. And he said, my son, where in the world did you ever get such a lousy haircut? (laughs) And so the relationship was with these two friends. Well, how should a Christian handle conflict? What should a believer do when it comes to criticism? How do you get people to disagree 
agreeably. In Acts 15, there is a final paragraph that gives some insight into that, beginning in verse 36. But let me tell you this. The book of Acts is a story of a movement. It's a a story that tells us how the gospel left Jerusalem and made it to the very heart of Rome itself. That's the theme of this book. It's the story of a movement. However, it's also the story about men, imperfect men, men who made mistakes, men and women who expressed their spirituality through imperfect personalities, all used by a perfect God. You know, some people view the early church as if through stained glass windows, like it was some perfect idealistic setting. It wasn't. They didn't float off the ground in Jerusalem. They didn't wear halos. They didn't speak to each other in the soft sanctuary tones. God bless you. It wasn't like that all the time. And this paragraph will shatter any of those illusions. And it will tell you the truth. The Bible never flatters its own heroes. We have a very human moment, a conflict between an apostle named Paul and a godly, sweet individual, also known as an apostle in one of the sections of Acts, a man named Barnabas. Yet through it all, God is working. They disagree, but God is working. It was Dr. Bob Cook who once said, God reserves the right to use people who disagree with you. Can you buy into that? Can you accept that? Or do you kvetch over all those people who do disagree with you rather than just leaving it in God's hands? that God reserves the right to use people who disagree with you. Well, let's look at this paragraph, and we discover three things from it. We see a conflict that arises. The conflict leads to a confrontation. The confrontation has consequences, and all three are given to us here. So we're going to look at it in this respect. Let's look at round one, the conflict. Verse 36, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Here's the setting. The first missionary journey is over. Very successful. Jew and Gentile alike responded to the gospel message. It created such a fervor that they had to take it to Jerusalem to settle the debate, you remember, over the law versus grace. And all of that is now completed. The first missionary journey was successful. It's now over. It's now time, they believe, for trip number two. So Paul and Barnabas decide, let's go back over the same area and see how they're doing. So there's an agreement, first of all. There's an agreement on the importance of the trip. There's an agreement on the itinerary for the trip. There's an agreement as to the agenda 
of the trip. All of those things they are in agreement over. But there's a disagreement. The disagreement is not over the trip. The disagreement is over the team that will be on the trip. Who should be on the team? Barnabas says, well, let's take John Mark. Now, here's a little history. John Mark is related to Barnabas. He's the cousin of Barnabas. And he was on the first missionary journey. So it makes sense that one cousin wants to take the other cousin. Some think it's an uncle-nephew relationship. At any point, they're related. But Paul doesn't want him. Because, according to Paul, he left. Now, the record tells us in Acts chapter 13 that on their third stop in their first missionary journey at a place called Perga in Pamphylia, John Mark departed from them. This is Acts 13, verse 13. Departing from them, went back to Jerusalem. That's all we're told. We're not told why he went back to Jerusalem. Just that he left. We don't know if he was sick physically. We don't know if he was afraid of the persecution. We don't know if he missed mama back home. Whatever it was, he left. We're not told. Yet, Paul the Apostle seems to view this as a treacherous act. As desertion. Now here's why, and follow me closely. Back in Acts 13, the word departed is used. That's Luke giving the information as to what happened. There was John Mark with Paul and Barnabas. They're there ministering. And he decides to depart. And the word he uses is a very simple, straightforward word. It just simply means to leave or to depart. Apocoreo. He left. That's just giving the information. But now in chapter 15, Paul ascribes a motivation to it. Look at verse 38. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia. That's a strong word. Even though in English it's the same word, in Greek it's a different word. Aphistemi. It means to instigate a revolt or to desert someone. Whereas Luke gives the information as to what happened, Paul ascribes the motivation He's trying to revolt against us. He deserted us. So there's a conflict. And you know what? Conflict is never fun. And the truth be told, we'd all love to avoid it all if we could. But there's a couple of basic, fundamental facts that are very obvious. Newsflash number one. People have conflict. Now, I know you're thinking, duh, right? That's so obvious. It's so obvious, but it needs to be stated. It's part of being a human being. The only people that don't have conflict are dead ones. Wherever there's a will, there's a won't. Walter Martin, when he was around here years ago, used to say, if you can find two people that agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. So thinking people have opinions. And thinking people with opinions have those opinions based on a number of things, on certain facts that they have collected. It may not be the best opinion. They may not have all the facts, but nonetheless, they have an opinion. And so people have always had conflict. 
There's someone in your life, guaranteed, that you have a hard time getting along with. You have conflict with that person or persons. It's part of being human. It's like what Linus said to Charlie Brown in the Peanuts Peanuts comic strip. I love the world. It's just the people I can't stand. (laughs) That's the human condition. Not only do people have conflict, but let's press this a little further into the family of God. Spiritual people have conflict. People within the same spiritual family experience conflict. If you have a lot of children in your house, you know what that is. If you've ever gone on a vacation with your family, you know what that is. I don't know if your vacations were like mine, but when I was a boy, our vacations is pile everybody into the Rambler station wagon and go across the United States. Now that's a trial, folks. That's a conflict waiting to happen. We all pile into that car. We loved one another dearly. By the end of the trip, we had second thoughts as to our love for one another. Well, so it is with the family of God. And you can't select a section of Scripture where this doesn't come up. I'm going to give you a quick sampling, and this is just scraping the surface. But listen to some of the conflicts that are well known in the Bible. Genesis 13, Abraham's herdsman have a conflict with Lot's herdsmen. They have to split and go in two different directions. Genesis 31, Jacob and his uncle Laban have a confrontation. Genesis 37, Joseph and his brothers have a conflict that ends Joseph up in an Egyptian prison. Joshua 22, two and a half tribes that settled east of the Jordan built an altar at the Jordan, which almost caused a battle to ensue where the rest of Israel decided, let's attack and destroy. 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam and some of those in Israel have a confrontation with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. The kingdom splits and is never united again. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples argue as to who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. In John chapter 11, there's a disagreement between them about going up to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6, the church in Jerusalem has an argument and a disagreement about food distribution among the widows. Acts chapter 15, that momentous counsel about are you saved by circumcision and the law or grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes to the Corinthian church about how much division is in that church. Strife. Carnality. Now that's just in the Bible. Go through church history. And it seems to be even multiplied. You could even look at the Reformation. And people talk about the Reformation as this wonderful, great time where we rebelled against the organized religion and got back to the Bible. But did you know the Reformers themselves disagreed on many points? Sometimes very severe conflict. So we learn that people disagree. It's part of the human condition. Spiritual people disagree even within our own family. Now, when that happens, sometimes it's carnal. Not always. Sometimes it's carnal and based on carnal motivation. And you know, I hope, that we have a common enemy 
who would take any disagreement between any person or persons and seek to fuel it to the level of carnality, even if he doesn't begin that way. As John Trapp used to say, the devil loves to fish in troubled waters. So he seeks to get the waters all churned up. Sometimes then the conflict is based on carnal motivations. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal. For one says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, and another says, I'm of Cephas, and another one says, I'm of Christ. Are you not all carnal? You know about that situation in Corinth. They were pairing off into their favorite preachers, favorite teachers, and causing division in that common church at Corinth. And there was even a group that said, well, we don't follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas. We just follow Jesus. They were the worst group. Paul says, you're all carnal because of the division. And it's that carnal, unloving spirit that motivated the disciples who wanted to call down fire from heaven. It was that same carnal spirit that motivated the argument as to who'd be the greatest in the kingdom. It was that same carnal, unloving spirit that caused Joseph's brothers to want to sell him as a slave to the Egyptians. A few years ago, one of the most famous churches in the world had a huge, huge disagreement. And it was public. The church was called the Church of the Nativity. It's in Bethlehem. It is thought by some to be the very spot where Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. There's three rival churches that have laid claim to that church. Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Church, and the Roman Catholics. And there's been an ongoing debate as to who's in charge. Well, as time went on, the roof leaked. And repairs needed to be done. Then the argument was, who's responsible to fix the leak in the roof? And the whole debate changed as to who's responsible. Well, you guys say you're in charge of it, you fix it. Well, you guys say you you fix it. And this thing became known all over the world. So what could have been easily managed became worldwide press. Listen to this news article. It's from uh, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Now, it would seem that this article has nothing to do with this study, but it does. Firefighters in Genoa, Texas have deliberately set over 40 destructive fires. Does that strike you as odd? Firefighters have started 40 destructive fires. When they were caught, this is what they stated. We had nothing to do. We just wanted to get the red lights flashing and the bells clanging. Hey, hey, now wait a minute. Last time I checked, the job of firefighters is to put out fires, not to start them. And so, too, part of the task of the Christian, who is called a peacemaker, isn't to start more conflict, but to help resolve it. So, sometimes when there is a conflict, it is based on carnality. But at other times, it's not. You see, sometimes there's a conflict, and it's constructive conflict. And if it's constructive conflict, then the motivation is care. There is a time to fight, and the Bible says that. 
especially when it's issues of doctrine versus false doctrine, where the false doctrine would undermine the very foundation and fabric of the church, the Christian is called to put up a good fight for the faith. Sometimes there's a disagreement. If, if you have the idea, I don't know if you do, but if you have the idea that your expectation is that all Christians on this earth are going to get together and join arms and sing love songs, I just got to tell you, you just described heaven, not earth. And that's not going to happen anytime soon until we all go to heaven. But there is a time to fight. Jude, verse 3, says, Fight hard or put up a good fight for the faith that was once for all given to the holy people of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him, do not associate with him, in order that he may feel ashamed. So there's just two examples of the early church deciding there is a time where conflict is constructive, not carnal. Hey, I was doing some reading, and I discovered that back in 1866, a guy by the name of Samuel Stone wrote a hymn based on church conflict. There was a conflict, it seems, between an Anglican bishop who attacked the Scriptures by the name of John William Colenso. And so this huge debate ensued and this rift and this division over this doctrine. And when it was all said and done, Samuel Stone wrote a song about the conflict. Now I wonder if if we wrote a song every time the church had a conflict worldwide, we'd have a lot of hymns, wouldn't we? Listen to this hymn. It's called The Church's One Foundation. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. So there's two instances of conflict, one carnal, one corrective. Sometimes it's carnal, other times it's corrective, and at other times it's not carnal, it's not corrective. It's just a clash. It's just a clash. It just happens to be two different opinions about the same thing. To look at that, and that's what I believe we have here, let's look at round two in this boxing match. Round one is the conflict. Round two is the confrontation. Verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John Mark. That's a strong word, isn't it? Determined means to continually stand your ground, to not back down, to not give in. We're taking John Mark. Look at the next verse. But Paul, here's another strong word, insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Look at verse 39. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. This is a huge fight. I want you just to consider, look at, maybe underline or circle, the word contention. It is the strongest of all the strong words that I've already showed you. The word here is paroxysmos. We get the word in English, paroxysm. You know what a paroxysm is? A fit 
a violent fit. The direct meaning is a sharp, convulsive-like argument. So here's Paul and here's Barnabas, godly, good, apostolic material, disagreeing, having a paroxysm. A convulsive-like argument. If in your mind you're thinking they're looking at each other and going, Hey, like, whatever, dude. That's not what they're doing. In Eugene Peterson's translation, the message, he writes this in his translation. But Paul wouldn't have him. He wasn't about to take along a quitter who as soon as the going got tough had jumped ship on them in Pamphylia. And so tempers flared and they ended up going their separate ways. I can imagine the conversation. Paul came in one day and saw Barnabas and said, Barney. We can call him that. We've been around him long enough now. We know him. Barney, let's go on a second trip. Great idea, Paul. The first one was so successful. God was in it. It was wonderful. I'll call John Mark, my cousin. Barnabas? No. I have a problem with him. He flaked out on us in Pamphylia. We needed him and he went back home to Jerusalem. He deserted us. Now wait a minute, Paul. Think back in your own life. I gave you a second chance. I introduced you to the church in Jerusalem. You were off in Tarsus for seven years. I brought you and invited you into Antioch. I gave you a second chance. I think you ought to give him one. Nope. Not going to do it. They had that fight. Why? Why such a blowout? Why such a major disagreement when both of them were Christians and both of them were leaders? Here's what I see. Two different men, two different perspectives, two valid points. They both saw the same things from two different angles. This was a clash. This was a clash. This wasn't over doctrine. This is over who's going to be on the team. Now, if I want to dig deeper, and I have personally in this, this is why I think strongly there was the disagreement. It was simply personality. Paul was interested in the work. Barnabas was interested in the worker. That was their particular emphasis. Barnabas is called the son of consolation, encouragement. That was his gift. He looked at people in terms of they're workers of God. Paul was this intense, work-driven guy. In fact, you'll notice it in the text in verse 38. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the what? To the work. It was all about the work to Paul. And so when there was a situation, Paul the Apostle would say, what can this individual add to the work? But not Barnabas. Barnabas saw a situation, and he would say, what can the work add to this person? I think it was probably pretty easy to hang out with Barnabas. Barnabas, I failed. Ah, don't worry about it. We'll give you a second chance. I believe hanging out with Paul was a little more difficult. Just from my reading of the New Testament, seeing Paul with this intensity, I don't think Paul was that easy to get along with. I think he had a pretty high standard. So if you wanted to be on his team, 
you have to understand his philosophy is the church is not a parking lot. It's a launching pad. And so he digs his hills in. I want to read you something that G. Campbell Morgan wrote in his commentary on the book of Acts. Some of it I've written in the outline for the bulletin, but here's the full quote. G. Campbell writes, I am greatly comforted whenever I read this. I'm thankful for the revelation of the humanity of these men. If I had never read that Paul and Barnabas had a contention, I should have been afraid. These men were not angels, they were men. Now, frankly, I can see both sides. I agree with Paul. But I feel with Barnabas and John Mark. And I know what it's like to be encouraged when you're down and out and you have a mentor stand up and stand by your side and give you encouragement. So, uh, what I note here is that in any disagreement, there are many valid viewpoints. So, we have a conflict, we have a confrontation, and a boxing match is over, essentially. Now, here's the consequences. Verse 39 through the end. Look at the verse 39, the second part. And so, Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas. From now on, you're not going to read about Paul and Barnabas, but Paul and Silas. And departed. Being commended by the brethren to the grace of God... And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I see here in the consequences a downside and an upside. They both lost, and they both won. Allow me to explain. There's negative consequences, and the most obvious negative consequence is their partnership and friendship was severed. That's never a good thing. I wish I could say they made up and lived happily ever after, but it didn't happen that way. Did you know there's no record in the Bible that they ever reconciled? Now, they may have, but there's no biblical record that they did. There's only the record that they went their separate ways. Barnabas sails off to Cyprus. That's his home country. And Syria, because that's where he had been spending a lot of his time lately, in Antioch of Syria. So he sails off to Cyprus and he sails off the pages of Scripture. We never even hear of him ever again after this point. It would seem, it would seem that Paul the Apostle won the argument. It would seem that the church took sides with Paul and not Barnabas. I say that based on verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed, notice this, being commended by the brethren, that is the church, to the grace of God. didn't say that they commended Barnabas and John Mark. But they commended this endeavor of Paul and Silas. So it would seem that Paul won the argument, but lost a friendship. That's painful. And I don't believe that that was in the mind of God. You see, back in chapter 13, when the Holy Spirit called them, do you remember what the Holy Spirit said? Separate unto me Barnabas and Paul for the work I've called them to do. That was a call of them to be separated for God to each other to do a work together. But their paroxysm split it up. Now they're not separated with each other, they're separated from each other. That's the downside, that's the negative. 
Several years ago, up in the Andes Mountains in South America, a statue of Christ was erected called Christ of the Andes, a statue of Jesus with his arms outstretched, right at the border of two rival countries, Argentina and Chile. Here was the idea. As long as that statue stands, it's a symbol of peace and unity between our two countries. There's Jesus at the border. He's our peace. It's a beautiful, beautiful gesture. But, as soon as that statue was erected, the people in Chile revolted and were angrier than ever Because they noticed the statue was placed in such a way that it was the back of Jesus that was facing their country. He turned his back to them. They were so angry and livid, they were going to revolt. Until one very smart newspaper reporter from Chile wrote something that they both agreed with and had a touch of humor to it. He said, the people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. (laughs) Wise man. That brings me now to the positive. We can see in looking at this how God watched over both Paul and Barnabas. Because when we read verse 40 and 41, when the fight is over, We don't have one team like we used to have. We now have two teams. Now, I want you to think of the beauty of this. Used to be one team, Paul and Barnabas. Now, now, they have doubled the missionary personnel to go out on the field. This is brilliant. This is so cool. We call this multiplication by division. This paroxysm resulted in the positive to have a team now that goes to Cyprus and to Syria and a whole other team that covers a different part of Asia Minor. God is watching over them. And they've doubled the personnel. I love it. That's God's math, by the way. Some would call it fuzzy math, but it works. It worked. Several years ago, there was a French novelist by the name of Alexander Dumas who had an argument with a French politician, very young, upcoming politician. The argument got so heated that they decided to handle it like civilized men. They'd have a duel. Those were the days when you took out a pistol and you disagreed with somebody, you just shot them. That was called civilized. So they said, we'll have a duel. Here was the problem. Both of them were expert shooters. So they decided that they would draw lots and the loser would shoot himself. Okay, this is civilized France. Alexander Dumas chose the lot, the short lot. He failed. He had to shoot himself. He lost. So in dignified silence, he took his pistol and walked into the adjoining room and closed the door, and everybody on pins and needles was waiting for that fatal blast of the gun. And they heard it. The gun went off. They all rushed to the door, opened it up, expecting to see Alexander Dumas slumped on the floor in a pool of his own blood. But instead, they saw one smiling, standing Alexander Dumas, gun in hand. And as soon as the people opened the door, he said to them, Gentlemen, a most regrettable thing has happened. I missed. (laughs) And why not miss? 
I mean, why kill a perfectly good life over an argument? And why destroy a perfectly good work of God over uh, an argument? Why not have two works? Why not? God reserves the right to use people who disagree with you. He's been doing it ever since he created man. And I have a hunch, I have a hunch that Jesus built the church and the gates of hell will still not prevail against it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is so comforting for us to realize that you are sovereign, providential God. That even in the midst of the human condition of human beings fallen, and even those who are redeemed, the conflict exists, and through it all, there's God working all things together for good to those that love Him and are the called according to His purpose. We don't always like your math, but it's wonderful to see the results. But sometimes, even by division, there can be multiplication. Not one team, but several teams. Lord, we take comfort in that today. We pray that you'd heal our hearts. We pray, Lord, if there's somebody that we've had an altercation with, that there would be healing. There would be peace. And Heavenly Father, you said in your word, as much as lies in you, as much as is possible, be at peace with all men. Sometimes that's not always possible. Sometimes there is a corrective element. But Lord, as much as is possible, I pray we would do that. Lord, I pray for anyone here who hasn't experienced the peace with you. Their sins still have not been forgiven because they have not been placed by faith at Calvary's cross where they have been atoned for. And it's our prayer that some, because of the conflict that they're experiencing in their own spirit, would throw in the towel and come to Jesus Christ this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.